welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. It's 110 degrees here in Phoenix, so I'm going to be talking with someone from a cooler part of the country just to balance things out. Tonight, our guest is Jeff Schultz. If you are a regular reader of the magazine, you see Jeff's blog on there. You've seen his postings as Jeff was the man by in front of the camera doing all the video interviews at the recent NMRA convention up in Milwaukee. Uh, he lives out in Staten, Oregon, I believe, which is the Willamette Valley area. Jeff's been in our hobby for a number of years, but got drugged back into the uh, hobby in 2003 by his father-in-law. Boy, there's a, there's a hammer over your head. Jeff was uh, in uh, the U.S. Army. A little bit over 12 years, stationed in Germany, Hawaii, and then uh, I think you're over in Maryland, Fort Meade, that area. And you can look at what Jeff does. He's got a, a website. He's got blogs. He'll also have all those photos posted on there, and that's www.schultzinfosystems, one word, S-H-U-L-T-Z-I-N-F-O-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S.com. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, as uh, when I read that you had spent 12 and a half years in the Army, I had done six years as a reservist myself. What were you doing uh, while you were wearing the uh, the green suit? Um, well, I'm actually still wearing the green suit, but while I was on okay. duty, I was uh, military intelligence. Well, don't let me ask you any more questions about that because I hate for you to have to kill me. Okay, well, that had to be just incredibly interesting. So, But I won't ask you to go any further with that because... I've had other friends that did uh, intelligence work, and they just said, look, just don't even bother asking me. I just can't talk about it. I basically uh, describe it as Uncle Sam being a really great tour agent. <laughs> well, yeah, I can think of a lot worse places to be than uh, Hawaii. Where were you in Hawaii, can you say? Up at Schofield Barracks. Okay. All right, so a lot of history there. Oh, most definitely. And you can't avoid it, and the island's not big enough to avoid it. Well, on your website, you've got the uh, the series of photos of where the war began, where the war ended with the uh, Arizona Memorial, and then the uh, battleship Missouri. Yeah, that was from a vacation last year. I had a uh, an uncle, one of my dad's brothers, served on the uh, USS Washington, which was a North Carolina class battleship, but his stories about being on a uh, battleship just fascinated the heck out of me. I just couldn't imagine, you know, 45,000 tons of steel floating as a kid. <laughs> that just that just blew my mind. It's not surprising, and we get into model railroading because we're fascinated with large steel moving objects. So what's a battleship but an even larger one? Yeah, there you go. Ryan and I talked one time. He said, what, you know, how'd you get interested in railroading? And I related the story of uh, being on, a, uh, at the time, Chessie System yard and seeing the hulk of a steam locomotive peering up from the weeds and I walked over and just the enormity of this locomotive. I just couldn't imagine it rolling down the uh, and staying on the track, you know, at 50, 60 miles an hour. So, yeah, Battleship does the same thing to me. I go, how does it happen? So that's amazing. And it's a, you know, your two pictures there were pretty, uh, pretty dramatic. I liked what you'd done there, the before and after on that. That was, that was good. Thank you. Uh, how did you get involved with Model Railroad Hobbyist? 
Um, well, as everybody knows, Joe Fugate's the publisher and founder of the magazine, and I'm one of the regulars on his operating crew. And basically, one day he called up and said, hey, we're going to have some people over for dinner. Um, bring your wife. And he pitched the whole idea to us that evening, and I've been part of it ever since. Okay, so like Charlie Comstock and some of the other people there then? Right. As well? Okay. Yeah, Charlie and I were pretty much the two that were there that night that stayed with it. How long ago was that? Oh, my goodness. That would have probably been June, January of, nine, or not 98, 2008. Because okay. the real event we did was Anaheim Show in July that year. Yeah, whereas I got involved with him just by making a, an innocent, I want you to understand, it was an innocent suggestion on, on the forum one night. They were talking about iPads. And I said, well, why don't you just consider breaking this magazine down into podcast? Wrong thing to do. Yeah, I had a friend who used to kind of respond that way when you uh, made a suggestion of how to do something. They'd turn around and say, well, thank you for volunteering. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, I like your idea. Tell me how you're going to do this. Uh, but that's okay. I I uh, enjoy it, and my wife likes it because it keeps me occupied. Let's jump to the uh, NMRA convention. All right. Because I'm, I would be willing to guess that as many of our listeners and readers did not go to the convention as those who had the opportunity. So. The, you know, I've listened to the videos, uh, looked at your good grief. It must be what four or 500 pictures on there that you've posted. Uh, it's probably about the right number. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's just, can't imagine how long you spent in front I'm of shutter. Sure I can just imagine your eyes glazed over getting done with Photoshop on that. Let's, uh, <laughs> you know, the thing that I mentioned to you in email was you had the opportunity to go into those two beautiful former Milwaukee Road cars. Okay, I'm going to back up on that, Jeff, and just ask that <clears throat> question again. Okay. Okay, and as I mentioned in the uh, the email, you had just this incredible opportunity to go upon the, you know, in the sky top, and then I presume also the uh, the Superdome, those really classic Milwaukee Road passenger cars, just. Tell me about that, that whole experience. Um, okay. Well, basically what it was was that Walters had arranged for those two cars, um, plus an additional Amplete car for, for extra room, to be brought into the uh, Milwaukee Intermodal Terminal. It's both the Amtrak station as well as the Greyhound station there. Um, and they used that for various business meetings and a uh, basically a reception um, Friday evening of the, of the National Train Show. Okay. And so... The photos, um, the early ones at least, from the uh, Skytop Lounge were from that morning, about 10, 11 o'clock or so, when we were invited down to um, discuss various things with Walthers, um, both Michael Stevens and, um, okay, Stacy Nappy um, Walthers, or Stacy Walthers Nappy, sorry. <laughs> but uh, also we got to interview Stacy at the same time. And so while we were waiting to uh, meet with Michael Stevens, we were hanging out in the uh, the Superdome, just chatting away, drinking lots of water, because it was incredibly hot in Milwaukee that week. Oh, okay. And then we just, we had a few minutes back in the Skytop Lounge um, to meet with Michael, 
because they were actually uh, talking with Amtrak about something. Um, we were not privy to that conversation, but um, long enough for me to get those photos you see there, and then we all back adjourned back to the uh, the Superdome for more conversation. And then uh, later that evening, we were invited back for the uh, reception they were holding, and most of the people congregated up in the top of the Superdome. Um, and I just happened to be lucky enough to score a seat across from where uh, uh, Mrs. Phil Walters, I don't think I ever actually got her first name, was uh, sitting next to uh, Robert Kuhn. I think it's Kuhne. It's K-E-U-N-E. But he was the uh, last original charter member of the NMRA from that first convention. And he was having fun telling stories about the uh, first convention and everything that happened since then to pretty much everybody who was willing to listen, which was most of us. So this guy was at convention number one, and now he's also at convention number 75? Yep. Wow. Um, he do I wish he had his original NMRA card because his member number, his original one, was probably somewhere below 20. Um, but he has an honor, or not an honorary, he has a lifetime membership card now, and I think he's in the number about 200 or so. Okay. Which is still an incredibly low number. I guess. Now, the cars, they've been restored. Uh, do you have these? They are gorgeous. Did they pretty much what the Superdome was built in the mid-50s and the sky top, isn't that about the same vintage? Yes, I think they're from that vintage of train. Late, late, either very late 40s or the uh, early 50s. Okay. That's the one it's part of. It may have been one of the later trains because I don't remember when they were using the beaver tail versus the sky top. Okay. When they restored them, do you have a sense that they, you know, maintain them? I mean, besides freshening them, or did they go in, have they been, you know, greatly altered from how they were built, do you know? I don't believe they've been greatly altered. I do believe they were probably at one point or another gutted and fully restored because they were simply gorgeous okay. inside. But the top of the of the Superdome was basically bench seating verse, uh, across from ta with tables in the middle, that sort of t um, seating, so very diner car-ish. And the observation car was... More or less, a whole lot of single seats. Okay, weren't they built with yeah, they uh, or built with uh, bedrooms and stuff to begin with? The sky tops. I am now. I think it was pretty much a pure observation lounge. Car. Oh, okay. I don't think it was a sleeper. Okay, I'm not a Milwaukee uh, road guy, so I'm probably asking dumb questions there. That's okay. I'm not a passenger guy at all. <laughs> okay. I appreciate them. They're gorgeous. Um, I would be more than happy to ride around the entire country in those two cars. <laughs> I think if Amtrak looked like that these days, we'd have no trouble filling every train in the country. Oh, yeah. They were just good. You ever done any travel by train? Um, after the uh, Anaheim show, I decided that since I had as much time as I really wanted to to come back up to Oregon, I took the uh, Coast Starlight from L.A. to uh, Salem. Very good. Very good. That would that had to be a neat trip. It was. I mean, the scenery is quite spectacular. Okay, because especially going over the Cascades. Well, the Cascades, but uh, doesn't the uh, northern route parallel, you know, pretty closely to the ocean there for a while, to where you can look out over the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, it does, especially uh, around Vandenberg Air Force Base. Okay. All right. Yeah, I took uh, the city of New Orleans from. 
Champaign, Illinois, down to uh, New Orleans and back one Christmas. Part of the family was in New Orleans, and I was up working a job in Champaign. And it was, I enjoyed the heck out of the trip. It was like the middle uh, 90s and dinner in the diner. So it was a lot of fun. There's this certain nice thing about not having to fasten your seatbelts. Yeah, that's true. That is so true. Plus, as a kid, I was all the time riding the uh, George Washington on the CNO back when you had uh, jointed rail. And, I mean, it wouldn't take any time inside that train hearing that clickety-clack, and I would be, I would be snoozing <laughs> a lot quieter now. Hey, back to the uh, NMRA. I recall your interview with BLMA. Craig, yeah, yeah, sure. He is, he just strikes me as a real live wire. Like he is, just seems to have a lot of energy. Um, if anything, he tones it down for the interviews. Oh, really? A little, yeah. He, he's just, he's a fascinating guy, and yeah, he's definitely full throttle all the time. Well, I tell you what, he's what mid twenties. I think he's, I don't even think he's twenty five yet. Okay. He's still, he's still actually in college. Yeah, and. He is just a mover and a shaker by anybody's definition. How was it interviewing? Was he an easy interview? Oh, yeah. And I've interviewed him now three times, um, basically once at each show. And all you have to do is just say, so what have you got to show us today? It's kind of like winding him up with those three or four words, and he let, he just let him go. Okay. It's that simple. Those Those are the fun interviews when – all you have to do is introduce yourself, introduce the person you're going to, you're officially interviewing, say, what do you want to tell us about? And off they go. Oh, that's great. Well, and he's got, you know, so much stuff coming out. I mean, he's got the, the F-89 flat cars. He's got the new line of uh, reefers coming the out. Trinity reefers. Yeah, yep. the open top version. And then he's got all this engage stuff going on. So he is an amazing uh, entrepreneur, and his company just got to be going like gangbusters. I know I've got a lot of his stuff sitting around. <laughs> oh, you're helping him uh, go and like some, gangbusters, huh? Oh, yeah. I have a fair amount of stuff I purchased from him okay. over the years. And it's stuff you know you're going to use eventually, so you just you get it when you can and store it away. Now, does your wife buy into that argument that I'll use it eventually? She tries to ignore it as much as possible, I think. I was going to say, she must have talked to my wife. I just get the eye roll, and she walks away when I say something like that. Didn't you also speak with the owner of Tangent? Uh, Dan, yeah. I was at his website the other day, and his product, those covered hoppers that he's got coming out, I mean, those are incredible. Uh, yes, I've got, I think, one of those floating around. The only problem with those, as far as it goes, is they look so good, it puts everything else to shame. How do you compare it to, like, the exact rail? Because they're about the same price point, that mid-30s. Th those are, yeah, and those are actually very, very complimentary um, in detail level and just gorgeousness. But when you're comparing it to, say, the Atherin Ready to Run, which was basically an assembled blue box yeah. or similar stuff to that, uh, Walther's, one of the original old ones. It's just like, okay, let's see if I can separate them in the train a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, because of companies like First Exact Rail, and then now we've got Tangent and other guys out there, even what used to be the, the blue box, the Aether and blue box, now that it's been retooled, 
uh, are getting much, much nicer. Oh, absolutely. The brake work on the, uh, with the piping and stuff on the, the B end of the car. So, And when, when I'm talking about the ones that the tangent puts to shame, I'm talking about the stuff from 10 years or more. Oh, back. gosh, yes. No question. And their current runs are definitely much, much improved. We're living in a golden age, man. We're living in a golden age. It's like, you know, we've all seen an impact on some of the print modeling magazines after Model Railroad hobbyists started coming out doing what they're doing. And the parallel would be that Exact Rail and now Tangent have, you know, caused the other people to really raise their uh, their game level way up to be competitive. There's probably some of that happening, but there already was a lot of that. Okay. I mean, for instance, in the covered hopper field, um, the Lifelike uh, Proto 2000s and their PS2 which originally came out as a kid. I built both the original kit and the Time Saver ones. Um, they turn out to be pretty darn detailed as well. I mean, that's just one example. And Atlas has been doing fine detailed stuff for years now. I mean, and probably a lot of it is, um, I won't say all of it, but a good chunk of it is probably because of Chris Clune, who started Exact Rail, because he's been t- doing tooling for all of these guys for years. Okay. You know, I look at, uh, I've got some of this product uh, out there. And, of course, my layout is, my HO is, is outdoors. You can, you can do that in, in the, uh, the desert. You don't have to worry about the, the rain. I mean, it's on bench work and everything just like a basement layout. It just happens to be outdoors. So I had to be <laughs> concerned about heat, though. Yeah, your rail expansion issues are probably interesting. Well, you know, I built them with a 16th in between uh, rail sections. The the wild card is, because right now everything is code 83 flex track, and some of it can sit there in the sun and not be bothered, and one piece will just, at the after a couple hours, look like a piece of uh, crisp fried bacon. And so there's no predictability on it because, you know, those ties are injection molded at probably 350, 400 degrees, and I know it's not getting that hot. I just replaced a bunch of track, and this next time, if it does it again, I'm just going to go to Fast Tracks, buy you know, some of their quick tie strips. I'm just going to hand lay a section at a time and just get past it. But it doesn't have any effect on the cars, the stuff that's been left out, which my original point was, you know, all this underneath brake detail that uh, everybody's, you know, seems to be the rage of, putting on cars sure no one ever sees it is it just me <laughs> i think i'm probably going to be paraphrasing him on this but i think the best one from that basically came from jason Schron of rapido who is if anything the king of under frame work um and he's got a story about how he got trapped underneath a passenger car's um well basically the toilet tube oh no <laughs> Well, it was underneath, surveying underneath the car and measuring things out. But um, I think his opinion was basically, okay, you can't see it, but you know it's there. I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, people want more and more detail on these models. And above the frame, there's really, they've run out of any place to do more detail. So you go underneath. And yeah, on the freight cars, one of the most heavily, you know, besides the uh, the end in platforms and ladders, I mean, one of the most heavily weathered, grunged-up areas are the, uh, you know, a cover hopper or the slope sheets coming down. So a lot of that stuff gets, a, you know, hidden by gouache and oil washes and pigment. Hidden 
hidden or highlighted? Well, depending on, you know, if you're starting with a dark mineral brown BNSF car or Santa Fe car, I've seen some pretty dark ones up in the state of Washington that there was no highlighting to it. The underside of that car was just dark gray grunge after all the years. But your point is valid. If you're doing dust under there, you can certainly bring that out. But, boy, you got to bend over. <laughs> Put your nose down on a rail to see it's my point. Okay, that's just just me. Somebody said, well, what if somebody wants to pick up and look at it? I said, hey, they'll get their hands smacked for putting fingerprints on it is what they'll get. You know, you want to see it, I'll show you a new one in the box. Don't touch the one on the on the tracks. Do you have a layout at the house? Oh, yeah. Um, when we bought our current house um, about five years ago now, it came with a single car garage. And fortunately, as such, most people wouldn't look at it this way. Um, the garage floor um, was already cracked. It had never held a car. Wow. But the concrete was already cracking. Mm -hmm. So basically that just forestalled any arguments over which car got to live in the garage, and I bought carpet. <laughs> okay. And during the week, the week after we bought the house, my parents, um, kind of as a birthday present for me, came over, insulated, and finished the walls of the garage with full drywall. And then a couple months later, my wife and I went in and got a drywall jack, and we drywalled the ceiling. And then I started building a railroad. Because by then, you had already convinced her you didn't need a garage to begin with. Yep. Did you leave the door? Um, the door's there. Um, what I did was I disconnected the garage door opener from the door. Uh -huh. It's an easy slide-in thing, um, just so it couldn't accidentally be opened. I insulated the door itself using fiberglass insulation and a whole lot of duct tape. And then I put um, vinyl floor, flooring material um, with the bottom side, the, the non-decorated side, uh, facing out as a backdrop across the entire width of the garage door. Okay. It's got a couple of funny bends at the end where it has to curve around the, the rails, but the house keeps the resale value that way, and I figure it's good enough for me. Rule one applies. It's my railroad. There you go. I, I understand that. They call those, uh, in California, they call them uh, California basements. When yep. guys take over the two of the stalls in the garage for model railroading, we all do what we oh, have yeah. to do. Yeah, there's some houses in this town that have basements, but I don't think anything newer than about 65 or so. Oh, okay. And this, this house would have been very difficult to put a basement under, and one, it's a manufactured house to begin with. And also, we are smack dab on top of a gravel bar. Um, trying to dig out soil just to plant things here is a real pain because you run into these five-inch rocks. Oh, really? Yeah, so I don't think a basement here was even an option. Okay. Uh, what's the theme of your railroad? I mean, time period? Time period is pretty much modern, call it... 2003-2004, and what I'm modeling is the Willamette and Pacific Railroad, which is a prototype in this area. Um, it's actually now all the Portland and Western Railroad. It's all part of Genesee and Wyoming Industries, so a whole lot of orange and black diesels running around. The portion of it that I'm modeling is the old Oregon Electric Spokane, Portland, and Seattle tracks, between just south of Salem, Oregon, to just north of Donald Aurora. Basically, I try and maintain 
kind of a prototypical thing through the Donald Aurora area. And then my tracks keep going north into what's effectively complete fantasy land because I had a couple industries I wanted to put on the layout that aren't, aren't there in reality. Okay. But like you say, it's your railroad, so you do what you want. Exactly. And the, the industries I'm putting in, they're in Oregon. And one of them was actually torn down in 1990. So it's gone forever anyway. Okay. And the other one, the other one is basically, I'm something of a Pepsi holic. Okay. And the local Pepsi bottling company um, is actually in Mount Angel, Oregon, which is on what used to be the uh, Southern Pacific's East Side branch, and it's now um, the Willamette Valley Railway. So I just moved it about eh, 20 miles or so to the west and put it on the rails that are my layout. It provides shipping for a whole lot of corn syrup tank cars. I was just going to ask you, what uh, what kind of cars am I going to see uh, on your railroad? Basically, Atlas and Walther's Funnel Flows, the corn syrup cars. Okay. For the for that particular industry. Um, a whole lot of center beam flat cars. And my, major, my really major industry in Salem is a, uh, a warehouse and reload facility uh, called Cascade Warehouse. And that's they actually lease a whole flock of those things. So you've got lumber coming in on trucks and going out on rail. Um, beyond that, covered hoppers. This is agricultural center. So you've got a lot of fertilizer going in and a lot of grain going out. Okay. Now, do you guys in that part of Oregon, because just above you, I mean, there's. I was amazed at the amount of fruit that comes out of uh, Washington State. Does any of that spill over into uh, Oregon? Some. The Hood River area, which is actually um, Hood River Railroad, is off of the uh, Union Pacific, um, just off the Columbia River, is pretty much famous for its pears. And there are areas of Oregon that have a lot of fruit traffic. And around here, got uh, a whole series of canneries for vegetable and fruit traffic, some of which is rail served, um, some of which is simply trucks. Okay. So when you built, have you used flex track? Did you hand lay? How'd you uh, do your track? Pretty much, not quite, but almost 100% Atlas 80, Code 83 flex track with um, number four and a couple of number six switches. Okay. All right. Much what I've done. Do you DCC? Uh, yes. Easy DCC. The uh, CVP product. I'm, I've heard the name. I'm not that familiar with it, but... I, I presume it functions like either NCE, Digitrax, whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, unlike those two, well, okay, the closest analog in the Digitrax world would be the Zephyr because the uh, Easy DCC command station, the CS2, uh, comes equipped with two built-in throttles, and then you just start plugging stuff into it. Okay. In my case, um, I decided I wanted to go wireless, so I just... I don't even run a throttle bus. I don't have any tethered throttles. Um, I simply ran straight out to a wireless receiver, and I've got a couple, three uh, wireless throttles. And then you spend, besides what you've got there at the house, you're also spending time over at uh, Joe's Railroad also, right? Not as much as I'd like. <laughs> How often does he yeah. uh, operate? Um, during the fall and spring months, he's generally operating once a month. Um, takes off. For December, simply because everybody's got stuff that's going on in December, 
And in summer, not only does everybody have stuff that's going on, but the heat down in his basement can become a little unbearable. Oh, really? Okay. It's just, it's a side effect of summer in Oregon. It does get warm here. Okay. Let me see. Yeah. Changing gears. Because I forgot there were a couple of things I wanted to ask you about the, the convention. You, judging by your photos, you got to spend a lot of time in the uh, hall that had all the historical exhibits, the collections. Um, I did not spend as much time as I wanted to. There. Okay. Um, basically, all those photos were from one really quick run through. I did go back a little later for a little more time. Um, but yeah, that was really fascinating stuff. I and mean, you're looking at this stuff from the 30s and 40s and going, how could they stand to do this? Yeah. Because it's like, and you're looking at this equipment, and not only is a lot of it darn close to handmade, which would drive me nuts, and I'm, I don't mind building models, but I'll admit to being, by and large, a ready-to-run guy on a lot of stuff, uh, especially when it comes to rolling stock and locomotives. But it's just that you're thinking of what they had to do for power pack, yeah. motors, and what sort of performance they got out of. And it was just like... Okay, it was a total other generation of the hobby. And if nothing else, it makes me appreciate companies like Atlas and Kata mm -hmm. and Lifelike all the much more. Now, who owns all those uh, displays that are in those cabinets? Does NMRA, or were they donated by members for use at the show? Do you have any insight there? I don't have any particular insight. Um, I was just looking through the latest NMRA magazine. Um, and they had a little bit of blurb about that in there. And it looks like most of it came from private collectors and industry. Because I imagine some of the manufacturers have some, uh, shall we say, really interesting looking archives. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it uh, was probably out of Walther's just because, well, they're Walther's. They've got everything pretty much. Um, and they were definitely uh, heavily sponsoring this convention. So it would not surprise me that a lot of the equipment uh, that was being on show there or on display came out of Walther's. It would also not surprise me in the least if a bunch of it um, was either part of now or earmarked for, I think it's the Howell Day Museum that the NMRI is setting up. I think that's going to be, uh, I think they're still working with the California State Railroad Museum to put that together. They were a few couple of years ago, and I believe that's still underway. Okay. Anybody feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> okay. But no, there's just some incredible stuff. And in, in your photos, and of course, I was a kid in the, the early 50s, and you mentioned, you know, if we contrast what we were talking about on exact rail tangent, uh, covered hoppers and all that detail, the new Walters stuff, and then you look back at what we played with as a kid in the 50, which was either American Flyer, S-Gage, or O-Gage, uh, Lionel. I mean, this, <laughs> this stuff was pretty much a glorified shoebox on wheels, you know, it just wasn't. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of having these flashes of the Varney kits, which I think were basically cardboard. Oh, yeah. Or the ones that were a block of wood that you glued the sides to, that sort of stuff. Yeah, they were pretty crude, and I couldn't wait. My The houses we had, you know, the train came out at Christmas and went away after Christmas due to, due to space, and some friends of mine, they had big bedrooms and were able to keep their Lionel trains up all year, and I thought, golly, how neat that would be. But... <laughs> 
yeah, nothing like what we have today, because I didn't get into model railroading until I was out of college and you know, certainly a, an adult. And even, even what I could buy in 1973 compared to what's out there today is just, I've still got some of this blue box stuff. I can't, I don't run it anymore, but I won't get rid of it. And my wife goes, you know, why, you know, you don't need another you know, paperweight, why don't you get rid of some of this stuff? Well, honey, you just don't understand, you know? <laughs> it's it's a collection. Yes, that's right. It makes me feel young looking at the uh, the old blue box uh, locomotives. If, if nothing else, looking at that stuff um, just puts you even more in awe of what John Allen or Alan McClellan, mm-hmm. those guys, what they accomplished. I and mean, they made some gorgeous operating railroads in that era and pre- prior to the 70s. And I think most of the stuff on John Allen's layout was scratch built in one form or another. Although I seem to remember he also did work for Varney. Oh, yeah. I have no idea, but you're right. The Gore and Gorn defeated. Gorian defeated. Yeah, it was just. I looked at that stuff when I first got in the hobby and I went, golly, this is a, you know, a high bar to try and jump over. It's like, okay, floor to ceiling scenery. Mom's not going to go for that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. How am I going to do this in a rented apartment? I don't think the landlord's going <laughs> to buy in. And probably when he did it, it wasn't like lightweight hydrocal and plaster cloth. It was probably plaster that was heavy as all get out. Very possible. I don't know. Wire screen and plaster. A friend of mine had a had a mountain on his four-bay layout, and it took three of us kids to pick it up, especially the end with the plaster on it. Could have, it, it must have weighed 50 pounds, just that end of, the, of a four-bay sheet. Ah, amazing. You, in where all the modular railroads were at the show, mm-hmm. just based upon your photos and stuff, there were some incredible and huge modular layouts there. Tell us about some of those. Yeah. What are some of your impressions there? The most impressive one to me was one of the Fremo layouts. I think there were actually two there. And this one was a group of something like 12 different clubs over several states that got together to put this layout together okay. for the show. And that just was, that was flat out impressive. But you had everything from Xeon up, although I didn't see any number one, one thirty second scale this time. Okay. I believe I saw that either in, either in Hartford or Anaheim. They had some guys running a, Basically, a big mo- a big modular loop of track with these incredibly large diesel locomotives on it. But um, but no, the uh, the Fremo guys. Um, I think they may have had the largest one there. I'm not positive. Didn't uh, Les Halmos also do a video uh, on that group? Uh, yes. Yeah, he did that. Did a video on that group. Les is very into Fremo. Um, I think he's got at least two or three modules himself, and is one of the movers and shakers up in Canada for their uh, Fremo um, societies. Yeah, I think in, on his video he mentions the the one layout there was compu- composed of, I think it was an excess of a hundred modules, and it was just blew my mind. Yeah, what's wild is it all worked together. Yes, it does. And, and, you got to think about that is you've got these guys from, I think, five or six different states, 12 different clubs, all building to a standard with a level of precision that it all works together. Yeah. Somewhere the guys who founded the NMRA are looking down and smiling at that. Yeah. Because it's, it's a case of standards that work. And I guess let's just draw the parallel that Big Fremo layout is our version of the International Space Station. 
it's up there. It all went together. It was built in different places, manned by different people, but it just works. Yep, you get a universal docking collar and just start hooking things right. in. Right. Here they build all their end plates and bolt them together. I think Les even said some of them are with squeeze clamps. They don't even bolt them together. It's just done with squeeze clamps. Just easy on, easy off, and then plug in a couple wires, and the DCC's up and running. Yeah, I think they've got a, a standard of using Digitrax for the Freemo. I'm not positive you can quote me on that, but I'm pretty pretty confident of that. Yeah, and it's uh, you're right. Les has done a lot of work on that, both organizationally and then with the group he belongs to there in, in uh, Canada. I've seen photos of his uh, group's module, and it, it's incredible. It's very incredible. So what else do you do? Let's see. I'm still in the Army Reserve. In fact, I have to drill tomorrow and Sunday. Um, I'm a reenlistment NCO, Army Reserve Career Counselor. Okay. Now I've got gotten out of the secret spook business. <laughs> okay. Um, don't regret that much at all. But civilian side, I work for a local telephone company as their internet tech support and some network management stuff. Basically, I'm sitting at a computer eight hours a day plus. Okay. Well... I didn't do spook, but the last unit I was attached to before I got out of the reserves was a part of the Pentagon. <laughs> and, you know, the first five and a five years and so many months, I'd never seen, you know, anyone at a drill or anything above the, the rank of captain. And I went to this reserve unit out in St. Louis at the rec- at the record center that was uh, attached to the Pentagon. And good grief, there were bird kernels. There was even a couple of uh, one and two stars that would be walking around this thing. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. But it was none of that uh, canned green beans opened up for uh, lunch by a, uh, a KP detailed. It was all catered food brought in. We ate well. Well, Jeff, I tell you what, I think uh, we've had an interesting conversation here. If you've got a drill tomorrow, that usually means, what, 8 o'clock reporting time? Uh, I'm going to try and make it up there by 7. Okay. I'm kind of flexible since I'm not assigned to the unit. I'm just supporting, but I'm trying to try and make it between 7 and 8. All right. Well, then we're going to cut you free so that you can go uh, spend some time with your wife, get ready for the drill tomorrow. Appreciate your continued service to the country. So, enjoyed talking with you. Appreciate your time. Look forward to your next blog there at uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, Jeff. I do appreciate it. It's uh, been good. Yeah.